Good morning, church. It's good to be with you all. I, uh, I know it's game day Sunday, uh, but I would take baptism Sunday over even Super Bowl Sunday, man. This is just like so encouraging um, to, to walk with our two brothers and sisters and help them think through their stories and then hear uh, just powerful demonstrations of God's Spirit at work through His Word, through the love of His people, um, just calling us to faith and to following Jesus together. Man, what a wonderful Sunday. So grateful to be able to celebrate and worship in this way together. Um, but I am also excited for 3 o'clock too. It's going to be awesome. We're going to do this. All right, the book of Daniel, chapter 3, all 30 verses. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, um, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Roughly, that's the way the Old Testament flows. Just Crack it open right in the middle, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 30. You guys remember where we are in the history of the Old Testament. Um, God's kingdom was established first under David. David had Solomon, Solomon had Rehoboam. Then the kingdom was split in two. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. It's where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple was God's people went sideways in all sorts of ways, and so the Lord judged them. He judged them by sending the Babylonians into the promised land and really destroying the nation. Um, but Babylon did this in a particular way. They didn't invade and just take everything over. They invaded and took everything out and took it back to Babylon with them. This historical moment is known as the exile to Babylon. It's also known as the Babylonian captivity because God's people were taken captive to this foreign land. And Daniel um, existed during this time. We saw in chapter 1, he was a young man. He and his friends are starting to age up a bit, um, but he lives essentially his entire life in exile away from Babylon. We met three of his other friends, uh, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah in chapter 1. We're going to see them again. We're also going to see the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. He's crucial to this chapter as well as the next. The statue that's mentioned is called 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. It's roughly 100 feet high, 10 feet wide, just to give you some perspective of what's going on there. But I'll trust you guys to piece this together as I read it, and uh, then we'll dive in. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, 
You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, or Babylonians, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, badpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. But there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to the three, Is it true? O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands?" Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, still be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And rose up in haste, he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? His men answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. 
The satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's counselors gathered and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, the cloaks of their garments were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his saints who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1936, the Blom and Voss Shipbuilding Company had just finished constructing their newest war vessel for Germany's navy. This was a major project with the latest technology in both maritime navigation, and weaponry. And so to celebrate the completion of the ship, Germany's chancellor, Adolf Hitler, traveled to the city of Hamburg and visited the shipyard in order to christen this new war machine. As you can imagine, all the hundreds of workers from the company gathered around the chancellor and gathered around the new ship. There was pageantry and speeches, I imagine they also sang the German national anthem of some sort. But sometime during the gathering, during the celebration, a photo was snapped of the crowd of workers. And in the picture, there are hundreds of German shipyard workers, and they are all saluting Hitler with the famous Sieg Heil. It was a way of communicating reverence and allegiance to the German Fuhrer, All of them are performing this act of loyalty, save one man. So this next image is zoomed in a little bit, and you can see one of the German workers who stands not with his hand lifted, instead his arms are firmly folded in defiance. The man's name is August Landmeister, and he had previously been a member of Hitler's Nazi party, but... Something happened to Landmeister, something that has changed many a man's mind across history. He fell in love. The woman's name was Irma Eckler, and she was Jewish. And by that time, in the early 1930s, Hitler had already implemented his hateful and violent policies toward homosexuals and gypsies and Jews. So when Landmeister applied for a marriage license to a Jewish woman, he was kicked out of the Nazi party, removed from his governmental post, and transferred to the Blossenbaum factory shipyard. And then one day, Hitler shows up. And surrounded by his fellow fanatical citizens, surrounded by this outpouring of loyalty toward Hitler, what does Landmeister do? What would you do? in his shoes. Would you fall in line and venerate this powerful, though hateful figure, or would you resist? Would you defy? Would you refuse to elevate any man like was being done? 
Well, the three men at the center of today's story are in a situation not too unlike August Landmeister. We were introduced to these three characters in Daniel chapter 1. We're told there their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but the Babylonian king changes their three names to Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And along with changing their names, these three, along with Daniel, are forced to receive a Babylonian education. Then they were installed to work in the Babylonian court in some sort of governmental job advancing the empire's cause. And the three men go along with all of this. They accept the name changes, no big deal. They graduate from Babylon University, not a problem. They serve in the Babylonian government, that's fine too. But now they are confronted with an unavoidable issue. The king of Babylon constructs an idol, a golden image likely of himself, and he mandates that this idol, this image, must be worshipped. In verse 4, the king's herald proclaims, You are commanded, all peoples, nations, and languages, when you hear the king's music played, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. So we have right here the collision of two immovable objects. On the one hand, you have the decree of King Nebuchadnezzar, worship the golden image, worship the idol built in my name. On the other hand, you have the law of God. I'm thinking especially of the first two of the Ten Commandments. There it's written on stone tablets from Moses, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. So you have the decree of the earthly king and the law of Israel's God. Which one's going to give for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It's much like Landmeister. He had the pressure to swear loyalty to the German chancellor, and he had love for his Jewish wife. Follow the crowd and compromise or stand up for what's right and be ostracized. Well, you heard how the story goes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. They refused to worship any false god, and they eventually are brought before the king to answer for their crimes. Verse 15, the king says to the three men, If you are ready when you hear the music to fall down and worship the image, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 16, the three men respond, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, there's no conversation to be had. We've already given you our answer. Our prior defiance of your previous decree speaks for itself. We have not and we will not worship the idol. So the king fulfills his word. He orders the furnace heated seven times over. He binds the three men, has them thrown to their death, except not. Instead, the king, who somehow is able to see into this furnace, the king notices, shoot, there's four of them in there. Didn't we just throw in three? 
He's seeing this angelic divine figure and he notices they're now unbound. Walking around the blazing cinders in this furnace. So in verse 26, the king says, well, come on out, guys. I guess that didn't work. Glory to the God of Israel. Because the three men are unharmed by the fire. Not a stitch of their clothing, not a strand on not a strand of hair on their head. Daniel says, they don't even smell like smoke. I don't know about you, but I can't even stand around one of those backyard patio fire pits for like 15 seconds before my clothes get all smoky smelling. These guys go into the flaming kiln of death and they smell fine afterwards. That's the true miracle here. The lack of smoky smell. All right, so what's God teaching us here? What is God saying to us through this chapter, and what are we going to do about it? First, I think it's obvious, reject cultural idolatry. God, through His Word, is calling us to reject the idols of our culture. So every culture, and ultimately every person, has something we worship. Each of us has something we ascribe ultimate worth to. Each one of us has something we put our highest hopes in, something we find our deepest joy in, something we worship. Novelist and writer David Foster Wallace, he was not a Christian, nor even was he traditionally religious in any way. But just through observing humanity with the keen eye that he had, he admits this, quote, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, end quote. So even unbelieving as he was, even irreligious as he was, Wallace still has to admit everybody worships. The question is not, do we worship? The question is, what do we worship? And friends, this is the exact perspective of the Bible. Scripture teaches that we are wired for worship. We are designed to ascribe divinity to something. The question is, will we worship the fake, man-made idols of our culture, or will we worship the true living God? And in Daniel chapter 3, the choice is clear. Worship the false Babylonian gods and this golden image that was a stand-in for one of the gods, or worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The choice is crystal clear for them, but the trick is that it doesn't always seem so clear for us. It doesn't always seem so clear for us exactly what the idols of our day are. Because in modern Western culture, we don't necessarily have huge golden statues that we clearly designate as the image, the idol that our culture worships. Instead, things are much more subtle nowadays. And we have what could be referred to as idols of the heart. Not necessarily idols of wood and stone or gold. Not necessarily idols that fit inside a temple or in a shrine, but we still have what could be called idols of the heart. 
In his book, Counterfeit Gods, author Tim Keller writes this, quote, To contemporary people, the word idolatry conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues. For example, the book of Acts in the New Testament contains vivid descriptions of cultures in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Each city worshipped its favorite deities and built shrines around their images for worship. In Acts 17, when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Athens in the nation of Greece, he saw that it was filled with images of these divinities. The Parthenon of the goddess Athena overshadowed everything, but other deities were represented in every public space. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. There was Ares, the god of war. There was Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. There was Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship. Keller continues, Our contemporary society is not fundamentally different from these ancient ones. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each culture, ancient and modern, has its priesthoods, its totems and rituals. Each culture has its shrines, whether office towers, spas and gyms, studios or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessings of the good life and ward off disaster. In our contemporary society, beauty, power, money, and achievement have assumed mythic proportions for us. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, But many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. When most people think of idols, they have in mind literal statues, and yet while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places of the world, internal idol worship of the heart is universal. You see, Keller helps us understand we may not have literal statue to Aphrodite, but we still worship physical beauty and sculpted bodies. We may not have a physical shrine to Artemis, but we still worship money and career and success. We may not have an actual temple to Ares, but oh boy, do we still worship power and influence and strength. Church, I bring all this up because we can't reject the idols of our culture if we can't discern the idols of our culture. We can't repent of our idol worship if we don't know the idols in our hearts. And sometimes it can be hard for us to see our idols because they're not always some 10-story statue in the middle of town. They might be hidden in the recesses of our hearts. But God's word is clear. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall not set up for yourself a graven image. And these three men, their example is clear. They reject the idols of Babylonian culture. They refuse to worship anything except for the living God. So what are the idols you need to reject? Maybe it's not a physical totem. Maybe it's not a literal statue that you worship. 
But what is it that's most captured your heart? What is it in your life that you can't live without? What is it in your life that you're dying to get? Money, sex, power, wealth, pleasure, influence, possessions, comfort, status. What's the earthly thing that you've made into a God thing and given your heart to? Well, whatever it is right now, the Lord is calling us to loosen our grip on the idols of our heart so that we can cling on to Him by faith. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had set up this statue, this idol, as an image of a God. It's called an image numerous times throughout the chapter. Well, friends, the good news is we don't have to make an image of God to know who He really is. We couldn't make an image of God to know who He really is if we wanted to. No, instead, the gospel is that God Himself has provided for us an image of Himself in the person of Christ Jesus. All the fake images we set up, all the false idols we create, they pale in comparison to the beauty and power and grace of King Jesus. So let's reject the idols that our culture clings to. Let's reject the idols that infest our hearts and let's cling to the true image of God, the Lord Jesus. So we can learn from Daniel 3. We can learn what God is saying to us and how we should respond. First, reject the idols of our culture. Secondly, trust in God's deliverance. Trust in God's deliverance. So rejecting the idols of our culture is often going to be an unpopular decision within our culture. This was certainly true for August Landmeister. This was certainly true for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Landmeister is the only one not hailing the idolized politician of his day. And the three Jewish men here are the only three that we know of in this seemingly large group not bowing down to the golden image. Rejecting these idols was a contrarian, unpopular choice to make. Landmeister was eventually thrown in prison. His wife eventually sent to the camps. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. Rejecting the idols of our culture is not going to be a popular move within our broader culture. In John chapter 15, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says to his disciples, If you were of the world, the world would love you as one of its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This was true for the three Jewish friends in Babylon. It was true for Jesus' first disciples in the Roman Empire. And it's true for many believers around the world today, especially in countries where religious freedom is not valued. Gratefully in the States, there is a 
high degree of religious freedom here, but even still, it's true for us that historic Christian belief is increasingly less and less mainstream. Things that Christians have believed for millennia, things that we have practiced for millennia, are now thought to be inherently bigoted. Now, does this mean we rage back against our persecutors? Does this mean we panic at our circumstances? Does this mean we flee to some uninhabited portion of the Upper Peninsula and set up a commune to escape the persecution? What's the example of the three men here? Look at how they respond to Nebuchadnezzar. O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you throw us into the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from it, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, if He doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the men say that our God is certainly able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. Now He may... Or he may not deliver us, but he's certainly able to. But whether or not he saves us, be it known to you, we will not worship the golden image. So you hear that quiet confidence in them. Do you hear that quiet confidence in them? They don't try to fight. They don't try to flee. Instead, they have this humble resolve. God is going to do what God is going to do. He may save us or we may burn to a crisp, but we are not committing idolatry. This reminds me also of 1 Peter chapter 2. There the apostle Peter is encouraging believers who are facing persecution, specifically servants who are being treated harshly by their masters. And the apostle says this, For to this persecution, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten back, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So these verses here are, of course, all in reference to the cross. Peter is referencing the passion of Christ. And he calls Jesus' suffering an example that we might follow in His steps. Not resisting our persecutors, not reviling our persecutors, not running from our persecutors, but instead continuing to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. And so, Christian, how do you respond when you're labeled a bigot? Christian, how will you react when you're accused of being a narrow-minded fundamentalist? How will you respond when you're accused of being on the wrong side of history? The example of these three Jewish men and the example of our Lord is not to fight back and it's not to run away. We are called to a steady but humble resolve to obey our God no matter the cost. We're called to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. We're called to trust that God will deliver us whether in this life 
or the next, God will deliver us. Just like he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, delivering them from the fire. Just like he did for Jesus, raising him from the dead. God will deliver us, whether in this life or the next. We need not fear and run from our persecutors. We need not be enraged and fight our persecutors. No. Instead, let's courageously trust God no matter how bad our circumstances And let's graciously love people, no matter how they treat us. God help us all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's stand in response to God's Word. And I will pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of Him who is the image of the invisible God, Christ Jesus. We come before you in the name who is the true King, the only King we bow to, the Son of David, the King of kings. God, we are grateful for this day of victory, a day of victory we celebrate in the lives of Andrew and Renzel and Galen, a day of victory when we remember the gospel, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again to establish heaven on earth, to establish a kingdom that will never be shaken. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us that you would fill our hearts with the kind of confidence exemplified by these three brothers. Father, we pray you would fill our hearts with the kind of steadiness and resolve that our Lord had as He approached the cross. Help us to remain firm in our faith. Help us to remain humble in our attitude. Help us to remain gracious to even those who curse us. Lord God, I pray for any of us here who are trapped in the lies and the power of idols. Ultimately, that's all of us. God, ultimately, each one of us has idols hid in our hearts. Lord, we pray that the light of your gospel would shine on what is darkened. Free us, God, from this captivity that idols bind us in. Help us to walk in joy and freedom of knowing you, the only wise God, the only true and living God. Free us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel. We ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen.